Well, good morning, everybody. Just to say good morning to all of you. We hope you're doing well and fine. It's great to see you this morning. It's good to have Nick Gromico hosting this thing for us this morning and teaching us how to make money on our business. Uh, I will tell you the Q&A is where you can post your questions, and we'll try to give them to Nick as soon as we can. And uh, if you want to chat, just go into the chat box. You can either chat to all of us or to any individuals. And uh, again, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. And uh, we're going to turn over to Nick and let Nick do the show for us. Hi, guys. How are you? So, you know, financial situations are a lot like snowflakes, I would say. Everybody's is, is individual. And for us to have a webinar here today, you're going to have to pitch in. So you're going to have to tell me, um, you know, what you're most interested in, you know, retirement, your credit score, repairing that, or trying to save more money, trying to make more money. Inflation is a big topic, which I, I know a lot about, and I can help with that a lot, what to do about it. So maybe we should start by looking at some questions and somebody you're going to have to just be open, open up to this stuff and, and, um, and sort of give me a situation you're dealing with and see if I can help at all. You know, inspectors are notoriously um, bad at keeping up with inflation. We have the, at the House of Horrors in Boulder, Colorado, we have an inspection museum. And in that inspection museum are some old reports from the late seventies and early eighties. And inside those inspection reports, some of them have the actual fees they were charging back then. And they're not terribly different than what we have now. How can it possibly be that 40 years, or maybe even in some cases, a half a century later, that our prices really haven't increased that much? That's, um, I think, um, the fact that we, the inspectors ignore inflation to a degree in their professional lives they may also be doing it in their personal lives. And that's harmful because um, when you're all done with this, you want something to show for it. And you don't want inflation to just eat up, you know, everything you've accumulated in life. Um, and so to, um, to avoid that situation late in life, you know, you want to be in assets that benefit from inflation. You know, inflation is really good to some people. And so you want to be those people. Um, it's horrible to most people, but it's actually very, very good to some people. Um, I'm sure Warren Buffett, who owns a, a railroad, doesn't would, would love if tomorrow the price of food doubled and his bread and his milk uh, went up from you know three dollars to six dollars, because that also means his his railroad is now worth you know a trillion dollars instead of a half a trillion dollars. So um, you want to have assets that, that benefit from inflation, in my opinion, because I don't think inflation is transitory. I've said this long before the government stopped saying it. I posted it all over Internet's message board. This is not transitory. This is not something that's going to go away in a few months. And I think it's going to keep continuing. Um, I don't know if you saw this new bill they just passed, but it's more spending. So inflation isn't caused by prices rising. Prices rising are the result of inflation. Inflation, in fact, prices don't inflate. That's silly to say, well, you know, inflation is prices rising. No, prices don't inflate, they rise. You don't inflate, inflate means go all directions. Um, I'm, a, I'm an antique collector. So if you, if, you, if you get one of my old dictionaries out from maybe the night from 1910 or something, you'll see inflation is defined in one sentence as the in, inflating of the money supply. Um, so people often in these days talk about inflation as if it's prices rising. That's actually this, the symptom. The disease is inflating the money supply. So why would the Federal Reserve inflate the money supply if it's bad for us? I mean, who wants more higher prices? Well, they inflate the money supply because um, our government only lives on half, uh, only lives on, um, uh, uh, lives on twice as much money as we provide it. So there's a cost to government, just like there's a cost to having your cable TV or whatever. And all of our taxes combined only pay for half of government. So the, so the other half has to come from somewhere, can't default, but it is kind of a default because what they do is they go to the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve prints that money and gives it to the government. Well, fine and dandy, well, you don't get a free lunch. That, that money they print, shows up somewhere and it shows up inflation within inflation. 
So there's two ways to pay for government. You can just pay with taxes, which we can't anymore. Everybody's taxed out completely. And the government's spending twice as much as it's taxing us right now. So even if we pay twice as much in taxes, which is absurd, it'd be all of our money almost, we just barely cover government. Or we can pay for government um, in the dishonest way. And the dishonest way is to inflate the money supply and we pay for it in higher prices because it causes um, all, of, all of everything to go up. Um, if, if anybody's heard of the, you've heard of the uh, motel chain, Motel 6, I'm assuming. Oh, yes. Yeah, been around a long time. Motel 6 was, was a corporation that formed when I was born, the exact same year. And do you know where they came up with the name? Six dollars a night, wasn't it? Six dollars a night. Now today it's like maybe sixty dollars a night. Still a good deal, right? But the price, the 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 rooms haven't grown tenfold. When you go to a Motel Six room, it isn't ten times bigger than it was in 1962 when I was born. So that just 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 shows you um, that um, inflation causes the purchasing power of your dollar to diminish. So what you could buy for $6 back in 1962 now requires 60 of these pieces of paper. Hmm. So that means it's in my lifetime, the dollar has lost already 90% of its value. So for people to say, oh, we don't have to worry about the dollar ever going to zero. Well, it's already gone in a, in a century, it's already gone more than 99%. Hmm. So if you go back 100 years, what you could buy for a dollar costs $100 today. So it's lost all of it, 99% of its purchasing power. It's only got another percent to go. All fiat money, all paper money throughout human history goes to zero. And right now we're seeing that tail end where we're really seeing it, it the money devalue rapidly. <clears throat> and we have to think about what we're going to do um, to survive that. And as I said in the beginning, when I started talking about inflation, inflation is, is, is a friend to a lot of people and a horrible enemy to most. So we wanna, we wanna think about assets that we can accumulate that benefit from inflation. Um, so I don't know if that's maybe sort of a start off, a launch to someone maybe asking some questions. I guess it's very difficult for me to just sit here and talk. I understand. Uh, hey, we got one we'll comment. to interact. Can, can you see the Q&A on your screen? I cannot. Do you know how I see? Oh, I do. Yeah, on the, slide down to the bottom should okay. be a Q&A button. Uh, anyway, you know, a lot of times, Nick, what, what I'm hearing from the, the guys in the field is that how can I raise my inspection fees? You know, how can I make more money? And, you know, the silly thing is realtor's fees go up every time the price of a home goes up. So that 3% or 6% they're sharing yeah, that uh, that increases when the homes used to be a hundred thousand. Now they're half a mil or, or higher, so their fees increase. But the inspectors, we we just didn't take that jump with it. So, what's your suggestion for inspectors that trying to get their fee up and make a reasonable rate for their service? So, I point to government again as the as the blame for this in part because with licensing and especially standards of practices. Um, they've commoditized us a little bit. And so that um, a consumer um, comes to believe that a home inspection is a home inspection is a home inspection. And whenever you're commoditized, you're going to have, um, you're going to have difficulty raising prices. Um, so you have to really try to distinguish yourself above and beyond that. The problem is that costs money and the average homeowner only buys a house every seven years. So you spend a lot of money trying to come out, trying to break away from everybody else, only to um, succeed at landing a client, only to have them not come back to your store, essentially, for another decade. Um, I'm trying to think of something where people willingly pay high prices for it. And I'm going to say like Whole Foods, which is owned by Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon, right? If you've right. ever been to a, you know, you know your local grocery store chain down there and then go into a Whole Foods, you'll see a drastic difference in price. Yeah, but when you walk through the Whole Foods store, it's not empty, is it? No, it's got people in it. Okay, so 
Whole Foods has the problem that home inspectors have. I mean, people think that, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, bread is bread, milk is milk. Why should I go to the Whole Foods store, right? And there's a lot of people that won't, right? Yeah. But there's a lot of people who do. And if you look at the grocery chain business, I mean, the, their margins are really small. They're small compared to home inspectors. They're all, almost operating on like a, a couple of percent margin grocery stores. Yet Whole Foods has the highest margin of, of any grocery chain in the world. Wow. And so it's done something, right, to distinguish itself that's different than, than other grocery stores. And when you think of your sort of in your mind's eye of all the grocery stores, you know, out here, they're like, you know, I don't know what the, what's down there, but maybe Safeway or something like that, or um, Kroger's or something. I think Kroger's, they should be, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're similar. They are similar, right? They're similarly priced. And Whole Foods sort of stands out and succeeds that way. And Jeff Bezos, no dummy. I mean, he's done it twice now. He's done, you know, Amazon, which is an amazing thing. And he's done something bigger, which is the, the web servers, right? I mean, almost the whole world is operating on his servers, including Internachi. So he's about the only businessman that really has done something globally amazing twice. They don't even have anything to do with you, other hardly, you know, other than Amazon was on his servers. And, um, so he's not a, not a dummy. And and what did he buy? Whole Foods. He could have bought Kroger's, right? He did. Oh, yeah, easily, yeah. Right. He, he could have bought Kroger's with his pocket change. He did not. So you should look at your home inspection business and say, how can I become something like that? How can I be the, the very best of the best? There is a sort of a cushion where you're going to have to um, almost remake up your, your, your business, totally change yourself, reinvent yourself almost, even to all the real estate agents that work with you. And like inflation, I think that should be done honestly. So you should go back to all your clients and say, listen, I know this sounds crazy, but we're going to raise our prices a hundred bucks. And let me explain to you why it's in your interest to keep, to continue to recommend me as your home inspector to your clients even though I've confessed to you right now, I'm not creeping these, these prices up uh, in the background on you. I'm gonna raise the prices um, come January 1st, $100. Now, let me explain to you why it's in your best interest as a real estate agent to continue to recommend me and why it's in the best interest to your clients to continue to recommend me, even though you know darn well that I'm about $100 more than everybody. Remember, what do real estate agents who are really good want? It's not sales. I was a top producing real estate agent for a decade. I didn't want sales. I got plenty of sales. I'm making plenty of money. I, I did 120 deals a year when I was wow. a real estate agent with only one partner. Can you imagine that? That's yeah. just me really? and a partner doing, a, doing, you know, a closing every three days. So oh. yeah, I burned back those, those days. We had big Xerox machines. They would yeah, come you in. You didn't and just, sleep at all, did you? No, we had four. I had four Xerox machines. Now, why would I have four ten thousand dollars Xerox machines? Because we're doing so many deals that we can't even afford to for one to even jam for an hour. So uh, <laughs> Xerox loved me. But um, what do real estate agents really want? They really want referrals into the future. They want to think about their their careers based on not having any problems. And where do a lot of the problems occur? I'm inspections, right? So. Home inspectors do two things that real estate agents all hate. They either don't find defects that are there, which causes them a problem later on, or they find defects that aren't there. Yeah, <laughs> a problem true. right then, right? So I, might, I would suggest using those two lines. I would say, listen, you know, you're a real estate agent. You want, you want a long career. You want your clients taken care of. You want referrals. You want people talking good about you, not that you recommended a bad inspector. There's two things you hate. I know you hate them both. Here they are. I don't do either, but I need an extra hundred bucks. And I want to remain your uh, go-to top-notch, number one, best inspector in your town. And I would say a letter to all of your real estate agents being overly forthright about it um, may even cause you to get other agents and their friends to go your way. Remember, real estate agents aren't that good at picking home inspectors. They're really not. So, but they they understand price 
And I understand when someone thinks they're so good that they can charge a little bit more than everybody else. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would think that that would be a way to go. It's maybe uh, a little bit scary in a way. I mean, can you imagine an ad that says we charge more? I mean, very few, very few companies run it, right? Maybe Mercedes-Benz does, yeah, right? Or, or maybe Rolls-Royce does, or maybe Rolex does. Um, but most inspectors wouldn't do it. They try to creep up the price little by little, charge mileage fees and all kind of other nonsense, right? To try to justify it. And they still don't, still don't make a good living doing that. Still don't Even do it. They don't all the auxiliary services. They still don't do it. Yeah. And, and can you imagine that, um, you know, I've been in this now 30 years with InterNACHI. How many times I've seen people your age, Paul, that have worked 15 years in our industry hard and did great work for the world, did great work for fellow Americans, helped a lot of people, probably saved more lives than a hospital, emergency room. When you think about all the safety defects they discovered. And yet, at the end of those 15 years, when they're worn out, they have nothing to show for it. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. Um, it, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. So don't be one of those people. I agree. Oh, hey, I'll give you a break. We've got some questions here for you. All Did right. you get, get it open on your screen? Yeah. So let me see what we could do. I don't understand the first question quite indicate the increase or in quotation months or two in advance of actually. Yeah. Okay. So I think we just went through the first one, which was, you know, indicate an increase on quotation months or two in advance. You know, I would be very forthright and, and almost brag about the price increase in a way, since you're going to have to, it's going to come out anyway. Um, um, you know, you might as well brag about it. Um, I can give you an example, um, maybe with regard to dating. For a while, I was single. <laughs> in my in my old life, I mean, in my fifties, I was I was a single man for a few years, and so I went on Match.com and um, went on sixty three first dates or whatever. But um, I'm not six foot tall, and it turns out that women like men who are six foot tall or taller. <laughs> So I would put six foot tall in my ad, oh. but the first sentence I had in my, in the, in the text part was that I'm not, actually not six foot tall. I'm five foot 11 and a quarter, but in school, I was taught to round up. Uh, don't ask me to calculate the volume of a truncated cone, but I said, I, you know, I, I went up. Anyway, that little bit of humor and that forthrightness that I'm really not six foot, um, I would say that almost all the dates I went on mentioned that, that that was the reason they um, wow. you know, clicked and, and went to it. So I think that if you have something that you know, you're, you're trying to maybe hide, the best thing to do is just uh, ride with it out front. Honesty is the best policy. I mean, everybody in my life around me, my family members keep telling me not to be so honest and forthright, keep my mouth shut. And um, at this, point in my in my age i'm 60 i mean i'm not changing but it served me well so i think maybe i've offended a lot of people certainly in this industry i i'm sure i've offended some people but generally um it's done pretty well because um at least you know what you're getting so and i think in price increases honesty and forthrightness is the best policy almost you can almost brag about the fact that you're charging more i would say okay so let's go down here um so Melvin says a flat rate price it as a percent of the property value. So let me let me say this. No one ever got rich charging what something's worth. So if you have a formula that that uses um like the formula I invented on our fee calculator to help because that's what people wanted that you know charges fairly um um I would say that it's, it's probably not something you should use. The amount you should charge anybody for anything is the amount that they'll pay. That's the best price to charge somebody. You're in business to make a living. If you could charge $2,000 for home inspections, let's say it's possible. Let's say you, you could. Um, somehow you figured out a way to charge $2,000. Um, morally, you should. 
That's the correct market price for something, what people will pay for it. So I don't like these, these formulas too much because they try to reach something, try to reach a fair price. Um, and a fair price on the businessman side in most cases is um, not enough. I just don't think it is. They're forgetting something. They're forgetting all the work you put into this to become a great inspector. They're forgetting your profit. They're forgetting your risk factors. They're forgetting a lot of things, right? Um, you know, I wrote that story about Pablo Picasso in a New York um, restaurant eating, and one of his fans saw him, saw him eating, recognized it as pa Pablo Picasso, the famous artist, ran up to him and said, oh, you're Pablo Picasso. I'm a you know, big fan, stuff like that, you know, bothered him while he was eating dinner. Then she handed him a napkin and a pen and said, could you, could you scribble me something, you know, on a napkin? So he scribbled the waiter carrying the parfaits on the napkin. And as he handed back the, the napkin back to her, he said, that'll be $50,000, ma'am. And she said, $50,000, it only took you a few minutes. He said, no, ma'am, that took me 50 years to be able to do that. So, um, you know, if you charge by a formula, Unfortunately, you're probably going to leave some things out, which is mainly all the things you've had to do to become great. And then on top of that, you probably leave out a lot of profit because you shouldn't be charging what you, you, you can't buy watermelons for a dollar and sell them for a dollar. Even if you buy a bigger truck, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Good so, point. Um, you know, don't be afraid to, to take those prices up, up and away, right? Um, let's say. So the next one is what are your top three financial tips or goals for a brand new home inspector? Well, the first thing is um, you've revealed something to me you should never reveal to anyone else in that question. Does everybody know what it is? Brand new home inspector. Right. So here's the trick I did when I was young and started out in the home inspection business. I was outside of Philadelphia, which is called the main line, which is the average price back then, this 25, 20 years ago, was $940,000. So it's good, it's good area to be in. It's called the main line of, um, main line because it's, it goes from New York to Washington, D.C., and it's a very wealthy area. But I went into the horrible areas of Philadelphia for 30 days first. And I'm not sure that that's available to you or not, but I went into the inner cities. <clears throat> um, the inner cities in, out east, um, for whatever reason, I don't know why, they don't pay with checks um, or credit cards. They pay with cash. So um, I went into those cities where no inspector wanted to go and did the worst homes ever, like just complete messes, one after another, after another, after another for a month, and collected all that cash, by the way. Don't tell the IRS. Um, and I cut my teeth there first. And I didn't actually advertise in my market, even though I had opened up as a new inspector. I didn't advertise. I didn't let anybody know as a new inspector. Then after I became sharp, I felt, you know, did all my courses, did all my education, did 30 days in the inner city. I came back to the market that I wanted, which was the main line. And I'm, I'm honest, but I'm also a terrible liar. So when I walked into a real estate office and I told them, that I'm the best inspector in town as a new inspector. And I looked everybody in the eyes at the meetings and everything and anybody else I met. And in my marketing, I touted I was the very best. It's because I believed it. People believe me because I believed it. They looked me in the eyes and like, this guy really is the best. <laughs> so what you don't want to do um, is to, what they call in, in, in legal terms, poison your own well. So you don't want to poison a well, right? You don't want to go as a brand new inspector into your market weak. So if there's any possibility that you can get technically strong one way or the other, and there's a lot of ways to do it, right? Do that first. Take a month of time and do that first. Then come back into your, your marketing will even look better. It'll look different to you after 30 days. And um, you'll feel stronger. And so your marketing, you'll feel more willing to, to have a marketing campaign that supports your contention that you're the best home inspector in town. Most people's marketing, um, especially new inspectors, are just saying, hey, I'm like everybody else. You know, I'm a member of Internachi and um, I'm licensed 
and I'm insured and I'm thorough and I'm on time. And did I say I was thorough? I'm thorough. You know, you see my point? But if you, if you are strong going into something, almost like Mike Tyson, let's say, and going into a fight, right? Or Muhammad Ali, maybe. It's almost, there's almost a level, and it's hard to say this for people in Texas because they're, they're, they're opposite of this. There's almost a level of cockiness you're going to acquire in your marketing. And you're, not only does your marketing have to support your contention, you're the best home inspector in town, but your price has to support that contention. You can't possibly say you're the best inspector in town if your price conflicts with that. Americans don't know anything about home inspections. But if your price supports a contention, it's high enough to support a contention that you're the best home inspector in town, that actually makes it more true. It also financially allows you to be that because with the extra money, you know, there's nothing worse than a broke inspector. Can't take a CE, doesn't have the tools, right? His truck looks like hell, right? He's got, uh, he's rushing from job to job to try to get more cheap inspections in. I mean, that's not what you want to be. So when you have more money, not only do you does the consumer think you're the best because you're charging what you should be, but also that money goes into your business. You can reinvest some of it back in and you can you can also actually support um, the fact that you're the best inspector in town. Start doing things that the best inspector in town would do. Why don't you tonight go ask yourself a question? If I was the best inspector in town, what are the 10 things I would be doing? And then go do those tomorrow. Good point. You're right. You know, if you don't have to have belief in yourself, you can't sell yourself to others, can you? You can't. You know, you have to almost. Um, well, I'm trying to think. Uh, not all of our of our of our attendees here are from Texas, but you are from Texas, Paul. So it's, um, you know, they say never ask a man if he's from Texas because um, if he is, he's going to tell you soon enough. And if he isn't, you wouldn't want to embarrass him. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what else do we have over the next question here? Um, I've increased my fees more than 125% since I started doing inspections in 1985. So our company has been, can everybody read these QAs? Paul, is that how that works? Uh, they, they should be able to if everybody okay, can open their Q&A Okay, so that's pretty good, uh, Charles uh, Walter. But um, if you think about it, if you raised your prices 125% since 1995, you didn't keep up with inflation. I just want to throw that math out to you. you. You probably raised your prices more than most inspectors by far. But um, a little bit more than doubling, I think that's what you mean. You raised it by 125% on top of it. A little bit more than doubling since 1995 would have not kept up with inflation. This is what I mean. This is generally even like our the inspectors who are raising prices are still not. We're not really keeping up with with the cost of um, of inflation. This is a perfect example. Even one of our inspectors who are really raising their prices, not keeping up. So, to for your average inspector, they really we all need to raise our prices. And for the brand new inspector who was um, the question just prior to him, you know, we're, we're counting on you too. You know, we're counting on two people. We're counting on the new inspector to not come in and try to capture market with low prices. You can do that with insurance that's commoditized, right? You could, you might even be able to do it with um, lead pencils, right? Because people, a lead pencil is a lead pencil, but you shouldn't do it with home inspectors. So if you're brand new, come in high. And if you're already a veteran inspector like Paul, keep raising your prices too, because the ceiling helps pull everybody up as well. Yes, everybody always complains about the bottom dwellers, but you also have to look at the top too. The top has to go up for for there to be room to um, come up underneath it. All right, so the next one in South Africa. Wow, I don't know anything about South Africa though. Must declare all patent defects. Problem here is that a transaction between the seller and the Vince, the three parties to rather make use of a home inspector. Oh, so in your case, um, Malvern, the way to do that is to um, show stories where people didn't know and so didn't disclose. Remember, you can't disclose something you don't know. 
In fact, you, in, in the United States, you have no legal duty to disclose something you don't know because how could you? <laughs> and the other uh, things to sort of maybe put up some stories on your website and things like that of where the, it's clear that the seller knew something was wrong and didn't disclose it. There was some uh, famous author, I can't remember, who explained um, in business that the seller always has a huge advantage in anything. I don't care if you're selling a car or a lead pencil or a house or whatever business, because the seller knows everything about the product and the buyer does not. So maybe you could go on the internet and find that um, that paragraph that he explained. It's only one paragraph where he eloquently explained how no matter what happens, the seller always has a big advantage over the buyer because he knows what the product really is. And maybe uh, use that as maybe a marketing piece, you know, on a, um, whatever you do, a brochure, your website, a flower, something like that, um, about this, this kind of this famous thought process about how sellers have such an advantage. If that's the issue in South Africa where they rely heavily on sellers' disclosures because a seller that knows everything about it is likely not going to, in, in many cases, not going to be forthright in the seller's disclosure. I mean, I see this in the buyback program, honest Americans, generally honest, the rest of their lives, when they fill out a seller's disclosure, they'll check a box about something and their print actually gets small. <laughs> <laughs> as if you know i'm not gonna see it if their print if the font that they're writing with is actually small and they make mention of like a leak in basement you know right? <laughs> uh when it turns out that it's you know it's a basement that continually floods um so um that's I forget all that stuff nick yeah that's a human nature <laughs> and i think you should in south africa if there's such a, a disclosure there's a disclosure form like that in the united states in most states too i think all states except for New Jersey is the only one you, I think you can opt out of a seller's disclosure by paying a fine. So, you know, yeah, in New Jersey, you don't have to fill out your own seller's disclosure if you're willing to pay the $500 fine. There's a $500 fine. And uh, a lot of attorneys, you know, say, well, you know, it's not a misdemeanor. It's actually, you know, you're actually agreeing not to do the seller's disclosure and paying $500. I mean, that's, that would throw up red flags to me, but. That's um, what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, yeah that made me question right off the bat. Yeah, everybody else has, a, I think, all the other all the other states have a seller's disclosure laws and, and actual dis seller disclosure forms, but they are all they are actually only, um, uh, you know, uh, mimicking uh, old English law from about fourteen hundred A.D. Um, that when you go to sell something, you have to tell the buyer if there's something really wrong with it. That's that's basically true with everything, believe it or not. Uh, whether it's whether there's a seller's disclosure sheet or not, um, you know our laws are based on well, except for nine states, which are mining mining laws take precedence in in Colorado and a couple other places. It's all based on old English law mostly, and in old England that was that became a the thing in the maybe after the Middle Ages that if you sell something, you know you should be forthright in any anything wrong with it. Um, and that, and that's that's basically the law of the land with anything. I mean, I don't care if it's a even if it's a car. I mean, if someone knows there's something wrong with the car, they're supposed to tell you what's wrong with it. Um, otherwise, it's fraud. So you don't even need those seller's disclosures, but we have them in in real estate and in home inspections. But they're they're based on something that's been around for you know almost a thousand years, a principle. Um, okay, so let's go on here. I think that's about all the questions I've posted. Okay. On. Got so it, really nobody, nobody's really got any personal, anything personal, all general. Like nobody said, I, I have this problem, blah, blah, blah. Uh, There's your one that so has a fee calculator at Internachi be, been updated to today's inflation rates. So this is a good question because people misunderstand my fee calculator. <clears throat> if you look at the fee calculator, it doesn't calculate anything. You have to set it up. So you have to choose how much you want to charge as a base fee. In, on, there's a separate page for this. I have defaults in there. People keep using the defaults, which is fine. <laughs> it's high. But, you need to raise those defaults. In. <laughs> yeah. So you have to decide what you want to do with your base fee. Like you don't want to get up in the morning and start your truck for nothing. So there's a base fee. There's a mileage fee. So you have to enter. I want to charge a dollar a mile. I want to charge 50 cents a mile. I would say with the price of gas, maybe you want to raise that, right? 
you want to, um, there's a size if you want to go by size. If, it, if the house is very large, of course, you want to charge a little bit more. Uh, there's an age factor. And, and these are factors you can change. You can make, you know, some people put zero in there. In other words, they don't want any change depending on age. Well, you know, I lived in a home um, back in Pennsylvania that was owned by King George. Wow. So the section of the living room with the fireplace was actually built prior to the U.S. becoming a nation. Huh. And I assure you, if you were a home inspector, you want to charge extra for, <laughs> for age on that house. <laughs> so that's the fourth thing you could charge I mean, that you adjust. And then the last one is how busy you are. So if you want, if you're really swamped with work, you know, then the fee calculator, um, I do this automatically. It's the only part that, that's done by me that isn't done, that you can't control. It actually charges more. It's just a way for all the people using fee calculators to get bumped up if they're really busy without them, without them whining. Yeah. <laughs> um, in any business, um, one of the best um, solutions to being too busy, and remember, home inspectors are in a different industry in odd industry in that they, it's not scalable generally. I mean, it is if you hire more inspectors, but generally if you're a one-man inspector or even a two-man or five-man, you can't double next week. You can't double the amount of services you can provide because you're making money with mostly with your own two hands, right? And um, this is another reason why you should hire employees, but um, because it's a scalable, it's, it's a non-scalable industry, you can't just ramp up. The only solution to having more work than you can do um, is to raise prices. I can't stand these message board posts when I talk about marketing, when some inspector comes and says, well, I have all the work I want. I have all the work I need. I don't need to market. Well, you're, that's not the purpose of marketing. The purpose of marketing isn't to get you only the amount of work you need. So pe some people think that, well, I have enough work for every week and that's what what I'm happy with, I'm, I'm, and, and so I don't need to market because I don't want that extra additional work. That's complete nonsense. So the purpose of marketing is to get you more work than you can do, so that you have to turn down work. So you want to market to the point where you're turning down jobs because that gives you the stomach, so to, so to speak, um, to raise prices. The purpose, I keep, I'm gonna go all the way back to the beginning. The purpose of business isn't to work or to stay busy. If I wanted to do that, I could take a cinder block, put it on my head and run around my house all day. And at the end of the day, I've done a lot of work and I haven't made any money. The purpose of business is to make money. And so to make money, you always want your, your, your marketing efforts to um, exceed your capacity. Um, because that is how you weed out which jobs to get to take, taking only the profitable ones, the ones that are not far away, not not the ones that don't have any ancillary inspections, not the old houses, you know, not the huge house that, that, that where the guy's trying to bid, trying to find the cheapest inspector. You want to dr drop all that, and give those to your com your nice competitor. You you want your marketing to, I would say even. Um, produce um, one and a half times as much work as you can do. So the man who says on a message board, well, I have enough work. I don't need any marketing. He's he's off by a factor of 50%. Yeah, he doesn't, doesn't want a working order right. or what? You know, a lot of times I hear inspectors say, oh man, I got all the business I can handle. And you get talking to them, they say, well, we do two inspections a week. Well, if they're happy with two inspections a week, I guess they're happy. But well, for it'd be nice if he would get three because then he could pick two of three. Yeah, absolutely. Get, not do the dud, and he would make more money because you want to choose your profitable inspectors, right? Yeah. The founder of Costco was in line was before he founded Costco. Was in line at a grocery store, and he had his whole whole pile of groceries, right, in his cart. And there were like people ahead of him that were only buying one gallon of milk, uh, a loaf of bread, or some, one one item at a time. And he said, "This is this is what." the problem is so he formed costco where he dissuaded people to come in and just buy one item he wanted the good big customer right who's going to spend 700 dollars <laughs> that day 
And um, I think home inspectors could learn a lot from the founder of Costco. I mean, you don't want the guy who just wants one little thing and not make any money on it, right? I mean, you have to also remember that there's risk to everything. There's physical risk to you when you do a home inspection. Don't think you can't get hurt. I know, a, you know, a friend of mine just recently just fell off the bottom rung of his ladder, the bottom rung, and hurt his ankle, and he's out for six weeks. Yeah. So there's physical risk, right? There's also financial risk, right? You could do something that causes you to get sued or something like that, or maybe damage the house, right? There's property risk to it, right? So right. don't take all that risk on for $25 profit, you know? Take that job and don't do it. Literally don't do it. Instead, work on marketing and get yourself some better jobs. So you want one in, about one and a half times as many jobs coming in as you could possibly do. And when you get to that point, and it's a little bit like a lot of my businesses. I mean, my bridge company has four times as many bridge orders as we can possibly build. Um, then we can charge and, and uh, we can charge you know, more than, than we need to and to, to make a lot of money. Um, can you give some tips on how to introduce yourself to more agents? Well, um, so where are you? Are you still here, Paul? Yeah, I'm here. I'm trying to find out uh, my screen. Oh, there. Okay. Um, so agents are, you know, because of two factors recently, I would say one, one very recently, are becoming more elusive. The first is the internet. You know, when I went into the inspection business, um, I didn't have the internet. People actually, real, real estate agents every now and came into the office. Um, the second thing was COVID, right? So now you have the internet and now you have COVID. Um, it, it even happened in my own companies, like, inter, well, internet, for example, something you, you understand about this, you know, with 35, 40 employees, very rarely do they come into work anymore. They were just as productive at home and with COVID proved that to us. And every month I write a $32,000 check for the rent on our office space. And all I get out of it are two dumpsters that I fill up with my personal garbage because that's all I'm, <laughs> there's, not, there's nothing else there. The lights are off. Month after month, I pay that, right? Thinking that maybe someday we'll all come back. Well, it doesn't look like we are. Well, it's the same is true with real estate agents, right? So um, you're going to have to get almost into um, their events where they all meet. They do all meet at offices every now and then. And you have to get to those. Now you may say, oh, well, the secretary in the front reception, she's not gonna let me come to the sales meeting. So what I did when I started out is I remember I told you I was in Mainline. There was a there was an office there that was very large. It's called Remax Mainline. Now Remax agents <laughs> are and other agents in that they don't lose part of their commission to their broker. They keep the whole commission, but they pay a desk fee. So in other words, they're basically renting office space from Remax, $2,000 and, you know, and they get all this stuff. I don't know what it is nowadays, but um, back in my day, the biggest corner office at Remax was for rent for $2,000. If you're a real estate agent, you could rent that office um, $2,000 a month and you had all the support of Remax, but you didn't split your commission with your broker. You kept the whole commission. That's what made Remax different. That's how they, how they became so, so big with that system. Because who does that system attract? Experienced realtors. Right. Because they know they're going to make more in commission than that $2,000 rent. The, the, the average real estate agent who's only doing two deals a year can't possibly do Remax. Yeah. Right. So once I realized that, I went to Remax. Remax mainline, and I rented that corner office for my home inspection business. I went to the broker, pitched him, <laughs> said, what do you care? My $2,000 is as good as yours. And just think about it. You know, your customers have to come into here. Your real estate staff is coming. Sooner or later, somebody, this is a, somebody's going to need a home inspector, and I'm nearby locally, right? I'm so local, I'm inside your building. So the way I did it back in the day is for years, me and Ben, and we, our office was inside the Remax building. That so, was creative there. I like that. Yeah. I mean, so everybody went to go get forms or go to, go to a sales meeting or some some stupid event where they, I don't know, whatever they do, these real estate agents, sometimes they have crazy events and or get a, or, or get a drink of water from the fountain, right? I was there, right? And of course, you know, the receptionist is there all the time. She's not going to let anybody else 
and the other home inspector in, she's friends with me. I'm in the building. I have basically an unannounced endorsement from the broker, Remax. I mean, I'm inside his building, for God's sakes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? My phones, oddly, the phone system we had, just as a, just a funny side note, um, yeah, I told you it was in, in mainline, so that's called mainline. But when you dialed out on your phone from that building, the caller ID said Remax mainline. So nobody, nobody ever didn't take my call. They thought it was <laughs> Remax's main line, like from Remax's headquarters or something. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was just really funny. <laughs> and so... Um, now, Ben said he came up to that idea. Is that right? Yeah, he probably did. If he came up with it, I'm taking credit for it. Um, uh, that's so, so it, was a, it was a way to meet a lot of agents and, yeah. um, and some buyers. I mean, the 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 um outside of that office was you know had a lot of traffic and then they they still to this day if you go to a re, go to a, a a real estate office you'll see the listings taped to the to the window sometime you know so that people can look at, at the wind as they're passing by and stuff like that so you know we taped our stuff to the window too and and we had a lot of brochures but it also helped me with brochure design that's how I became really good at marketing brochures was because what I decided is I told the receptionist, let the other inspectors, because I was forming InterNACHI back then, and I don't want to lock them out. So I let them put their brochures up, you know. Really? Yeah. I said, let them put them up. And then I was in a position where I was seated so that I could actually see the receptionist area. And when a buyer would come into the lobby, you know, for whatever reason, they're meeting a real estate agent there, they're going to go drive, take their cars together and drive somewhere, look at look at homes out there or whatever. Um, I watched them sometimes look through the home inspection brochures. And there were three possibilities that a consumer would do when they looked at a, at a real estate, a, a, a home inspection brochure. They would either not touch it. Um, they would pick it up, look at it and put it back. Or they would pick it up and take it. And so... I was trying to figure out why they would take certain home inspection brochures and why they wouldn't. And I came up with an ingenious idea. I just asked them. <laughs> so I said, why did you take that home inspection brochure? And um, I learned a lot about marketing that way. And that, so that was another benefit of having an office inside a real estate office. Inside a real estate office, you get to meet the end client, which is the buyer ahead of doing the home inspection often many cases. Um, remember when we get out of the truck and say, hi, I'm Paul Roebuck, I'm from blah, 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 home inspections. It's nice to meet you and I'm here to start your home inspection. <clears throat> Unlike any other business, you're meeting your client for the very first time. Yeah. You know, I'm in businesses where I have to go sell jobs, contracting business. You have to go kiss ugly babies and pet their poodle like you have in the background there and, and all that stuff, right? To sell the job, right? But the home inspection business is very different in that we don't sell jobs. We don't, other than when the phone rings, we don't, there's no ability to go out first, meet the client, sell them the job, and then come back and do it. When you're getting out of your truck on a home inspection, it's very likely you're meeting your client for the very first time. Um, and so because of that, <clears throat> because of that quirk in our industry, marketing becomes super important. It's more important than in other businesses because the sales opportunity, which is on the phone, is so small. And often it's non-existent. The real estate agent schedules it, right? Right. So can you imagine being in a business <clears throat> where you don't have an opportunity to sell? If you don't have an opportunity to sell, you better market pretty strong. So, Very good points. Wow. Okay. What, what else do we have? What, what is the next one? What company expenses can we write off on our tax returns? Everything. You can write off absolutely everything. I mean, I can't imagine something not being written off, including your the actual footwear, your footwear. I write off my footwear, right? So an employee doesn't have this advantage, right? So, and maybe you take part of your compensation as an employee and part of your compensation as, you know, a distribution, which is probably the best way to do it. But the employee, <clears throat> an employee doesn't, um, you know, my employee, Tiffany's sitting not far from here. When she drives from her house to here, that's not a deduction to her. It is if you're, uh, a you know, subcontractor of your own company, right? Or if you're taking distribution, her footwear is not deductible. Her, I don't know what she's wearing, but she can't deduct her heels. Whereas you can. So there, there's very rare, very rarely is there any expense that isn't deductible. 
Internachi, you know, is membership is deductible, <clears throat> ladders, shoes, everything, certainly your gas. So part of the big advantage of being in business is that you can deduct everything, which is why I think they just hired 87,000 new IRS agents and they announced what they're going after. They're going after the small, smaller to medium-sized business owners. Um, only 1%, uh, I'm sorry, only 2% of all um, people making a million dollars or more were audited. That means that people are making a couple hundred thousand dollars were, were very rarely audited. So they want to go after us as home inspectors because that's where all the money is. Remember, there are only uh, 734 billionaires in the United States. 734. So if you ever hear a politician uh, ragging on billionaires, you know, billionaires got to pay their fair share or billionaires this and billionaires are out of the loopholes and stuff like that. It's a, it's a politician who has, uh, you know, no political back, backbone at all. It's easy to pick on 734 people. That's only 734 votes he or she will lose, right? It's easy to pick on a crowd of 734. With one hand, with your mouth, and while your hand is signing a bill to send 87,000 IRS agents after middle-class business owners. Why? Why don't they go after the billionaires? There's not enough money. There's not enough of them. There's a little room full of them, you know? And they don't have their wealth in income. Remember, it's income tax. Always remember that it's income tax, not wealth tax. So people complain about, you know, Elon Musk, actually, my understanding is that from his divorce papers that he takes almost no income at all. You know, they either borrow on their assets or don't, or just don't live on high on a hog. I mean, think about Jeff Bezos. He could have a hundred mansions, income that covers a hundred mansions and that income would be a very small portion of his wealth. Yeah. So, you know, as long as it's just income tax, you're never going to collect it from billionaires. You're going to collect it from people like us. And apparently, as of a couple of days ago, that's exactly what they intend to do. So deduct everything. Okay. What else do we have? Company is doing well by offering additional benefits, a profit share, et cetera. We do this um, owners compensated the same way. How much would you suggest would be an acceptable take? from the company. I would say the acceptable take is zero. Um, so it turns out psychologically, and I argue this with Chris Morrell all the time because we, we give our employees a lot, of, a lot of nice little benefits, that they're not as appreciated as, as much as it costs you. So um, it's, it might feel good to be generous to your employees and to cut them in but they don't deserve to be cut in. They're not business owners, they're employees. They can leave tomorrow with no notice. You can't fire them with no notice. They put up zero capital to start your business. You put up everything. They're at no risk. They can go and compete with you tomorrow. Um, I know it feels good and it feels like, oh, we're all team, but find that camaraderie somewhere else, I would say. You know, your employees are in, are in their minds in a different class than you. Don't you make the mistake that they didn't and consider them to be part of your team and all that stuff like that. Don't, it, an employee is not something to be so terribly friendly with, I would say. I, have, I employ 112 people. And obviously, you know, maybe I'm a likable guy to some of them, I don't know, but I get invited here and there, right? To this party, to go to bowling or to go to, let's go have, where you doing your drinking is one of the ones, right? And all that stuff, right? And all that crazy stuff, right? I don't go out with any of them. I don't go do anything with any of them. I just don't, you know? I mean, I, I know what I am and I know my position in this company and it's not we're not, a, we're not a team when it comes to splitting up my profits because those profits are going to need to be piled up something an employee won't do for lean times or when we want to do R&D or we want to grow, we want to do more marketing, we're going to have to spend my money, not the money that they got. So I know that sounds harsh. Uh, probably people are going to say, well, he's really terrible to his employees. I'm not I'm very good to my employees, but they get paid exactly something and that's it. I'm not here to split my profits with them. Um, 
So I would say the answer is zero. Yeah, I saw that big trailer you have or where they're cooking for the employees and stuff you got. I mean, right. So every day at 11, all my all my employees can come to uh, my farm and I have a chef. Uh, it's, Hunter, it's, it's actually Hunter Shepherd, who's Kenton Shepherd's son. He's a chef. And I have a one ton grill and we cook for all of them and they can eat. But secretly, it's not because I'm trying to be particularly nice to them to feed them every day at 11. I know in the construction business, um, that you know i hired some rough guys some guys have been in prison some maybe some you know i would say a rougher crowd um and guys that aren't very good with money but when they wake up in the morning and they know the least they're going to eat good they can eat all they want it's all you can eat every day at 11 in my place they come into work i mean you should see you know my you know, the, the amount of people that come to work every day in my construction crew probably surpasses everybody in the nation. I mean, wow. I have a, almost a full attendance every day. Feed them every day, feed them well, you know. It also provides um, a center point because we're all, we're in 14 different companies. So we're all doing different things and everything. It, it brings them all together where they can chat a little bit about business and talk and maybe help, you know, keep things um, integrated in the companies so that they know what's every, what one hand is doing and what the other is, isn't. I mean, on some of these webinars, I should show you my um, little office. I have all the keys on a keyboard so I can see what keys are missing so I can figure out where what everybody's doing and where they're at. Um, so it helps with some of that and also with a little bit of, um, I guess, a team feeling. But um, it's not because I'm trying to um, share my profits with them. It just makes good sense, especially on Fridays. Um, <laughs> the construction business, uh, if you let them loose to go to lunch on Fridays, uh, they're either not going to come back or they're going to come back in a state that's not going to be safe for them to, to operate. And so keeping them on, keeping them on the farm, literally, <laughs> <laughs> is a purely financial business decision to me. And don't tell them that. Okay, <laughs> let's move on, see what else we have. Um, are we done here? Are we... Uh, let's see. I had a few more questions there. Okay, what else do we have? Said, what were the specific observations about successful brochures and other marketing? Well, uh, so um, I, I can't say I'm a humble guy, but I would say that um, you know, throughout life, one should be humble. Um, I think Jesus taught us that, right? He wasn't a he wasn't a flamboyant personality. Um, he was, I would describe him as a humble person, right? Yet he accomplished a lot being humble. And so I would say throughout life, you should mimic that. You should try to be humble. Um, you know, I try, I fail at it. Um, there's one exception and that's in marketing. This is no time to be humble. This is the time to be Muhammad Ali or whatever you want, whatever braggart you want to think about when you think about it. This is the time to brag and tell all the reasons they should hire you. And so I would say the, if I had to sum it up in a, on a webinar <laughs> with Paul here in one day, the biggest problem I see with brochures is humility. They're very um, matter of fact, um, often too text heavy, listing all the nice things they've done or something like that. This is not that time to do that. This is not a resume. Um, this is not a time to even be a, what I would say calm. Your brochure should almost have um, a sense of fierceness to it. So I can't go into all the brochure stuff that I know about. I don't know more about brochures probably than a lot of people, but that is probably the overall thing. This is no time to be humble. Um, other than that, uh, a brochure with you, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, if you're uh, uh, over the age of, I would say 40, exploit that. I mean, what consumers are generally buying is not the inspection report. It's not the inspection, and it's not the inspection report. What they're generally purchasing when you really ask consumers, like I did, what are they looking for? It's whiskers. If I had to describe it with one word, it's whiskers. So if you have them, <laughs> time to use them so right? that's, that's been my problem all these years huh yeah i mean i tried to make years ago maybe 20 years i tried to come up with the marketing equivalent of whiskers and i and i succeeded and it's worked like a charm which is certified master inspector it's such a cocky 
uh, idea and it's such an understandable an instantly understandable concept. So whereas if you write all your experiences down, I've been in business for 15 years and I've been this and I did this, I licensed this license and this course I took and all this stuff, that can't compete, all that text, that resume looking text with those three little words, certified master inspector is the marketing um, manifestation of whiskers. And that's why it works so well. Cool. And I could, it does work. What do you I mean, think listen, about, listen, I've created, I've, I've created hundreds of things to help home inspectors in my career. Most of them don't work. They want to talk about being humble. I would say 97% of the programs that I came up for home inspectors to try to help them failed. I'm generally, if you looked at, if you graded me, if my grade school teachers graded me, I'm a high school dropout. If my grade school, if my grade school teacher, I can't say high school teachers because I don't have any. If my grade school teachers came back and graded me, they would say, I'm a, I'm, I'm a failure at helping home inspectors because about 97% of the crazy stuff I came up with after I tested it didn't work. And that's why you'll never hear of it. The few things I have, the buyback program, the um, certified master inspector, um, the few things that are left on the table, the now, the now that you've had a home inspection book customized, those, those few things, three or four things, they really work well. And the reason they work well is because they are the result of dead bodies of my ideas laying around all over the place that just, just simply didn't work. Certified master inspector is definitely one that, that does. That's, that's a good one. What do, you okay. think about the, what do you think about the inspectors going out and giving uh, education classes where they're actually uh, giving the realtors uh, continued ed hours for their well, license when they teach these courses? Okay, so it would be great for you and bad for me. Now, why? So everybody's, everybody listening to this webinar says, why would Nick say that it's good for Paul to do that and bad for Nick or Mika to do it? It's, it has to do with personality. I mean, your face even is lovable. No kidding. I mean, you're a likable guy. So that has nothing to do with the course itself or the technical part of it, getting a, their CE for free instead of $20. I mean, nobody cares, right? It's that it's your personality in front of those people. People are people, it matters. I have the personality of a cinder block. So I have no chance of going in front of a bunch of real estate agents and having them like me afterwards. I mean, I might succeed at teaching them something, but they're not going to have this um, affinity to me that they would to someone likable. So if you're a likable person and if you're not, if you're unlikable and, and are unsure, <laughs> <laughs> you might have to look at yourself objectively, but if you're a likable personality, I would say it might be a great decision for you. And Ben can help you with that. He can get you licensed in any state to, to teach um, in front of real estate agents. Um, it's a little a bit inefficient. Questions. But, a couple okay. other questions, Nick, and we're, we're about to ready to wrap this thing up for you. Uh, let's see. It said, in my experience, sellers deem a home inspector as someone who assists the agent to drive the price lower. Um, well, remember, any objection that a seller has that you can sense is something you should exploit. So if, you know, every complaint, every time I get a seller's complaint, like, you know, your, your internet, you remember, was just here and, you know, he went up on my roof and that roof hasn't leaked in 35 years and he says it has to be replaced. You know, the dumbass doesn't even know what he's talking about. It's never leaked in 35 years, you know, or whatever. I always tell the seller, listen. Whatever you hate about that inspector being like a little bit too nitpicky. Is he nitpicky? Yeah, he was really nitpicky. And, you know, I said, maybe, you, and you're moving locally? Yeah, maybe you should hire that same guy. Oh, that's a good idea. So, um, you know, I would always, uh, if, you're, if you're a thorough inspector, I would always have a leave behind packet. There's a leave behind um, samples and stuff like that on InterNACHI's website. Because you always want to be not only uh, uh, trying to get the seller's inspection, but also you want to do something which most inspectors don't do, which is to work your existing client base. I don't know how long you've been an inspector, Paul, long, longer than me. I'm sure you have a massive past client base. If you ever really needed work, you could go to that, do a marketing piece and, and hit them all with it. You know, just do conventional marketing. Remember, again, people that pick on me for, you know, marketing, marketing, marketing. Um, does anybody um, know what Coca-Cola is or tastes like? Everybody does, right? Yeah, absolutely. I realize there's a lot of seminars on um, relationship marketing, right? 
Um, but it's very inefficient and it caps you. So if your whole business is based on real estate agents liking you personally and your smell, and that's why they give you home inspections, you are probably going to, it's probably going to work. And that's the problem with it. It's going to work, but it's, you're going to be capped financially. I mean, I didn't, in all my businesses, and I made a lot of money. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty well off. You know, I did not ever rely on my personality because I couldn't. I, my personality sucks. So be, that's a blessing. It's a blessing that God gave me. There's three good things he did to me. You let me grow up poor. You let me get shot in the leg. And he gave me a personality that I can't rely on. And because I can't rely on my personality, I had to do real marketing like Coca-Cola. Does anybody know the president of the Coca-Cola company? I sure don't. I don't know if he's a nice guy or he's a nice woman or they have a nice personality or not. <clears throat> Today at lunch, I'm going to buy a Coca-Cola. And when I when you turn on the TV, you're probably going to see a, an ad for Coca-Cola. Now, here's a here's a company where you know seven billion people drink eight ounces on average of their product every day, and yet they're still doing conventional marketing. So, in my opinion, snail mail, brochures, conventional marketing ads and things like that. Those all are things we should be doing. Um, I know there's a couple of groups out there that are really big on um, relationship marketing and that stuff works, but it will cap you. I, there's no way on earth I could have, I'm going to give you, I mean, I, I have a lot of other companies, but I'm going to give you one you're familiar with, which is Internachi, the nonprofit group I formed. Um, could you imagine um, if I told you, well, I got my 29,654 members by driving around the country, delivering chocolates, dark chocolates to, to the inspectors and hoping that they liked my Nicromico's personality enough to join Internachi. Do you think I'd have 29,654? Do you think I'd have 96% of the entire inspection industry if I relied on relationship marketing? No, I had to do with conventional real marketing. And so I'm a fan of it because it works. And so... And so is uh, apparently the president of Coca-Cola. Absolutely. All right. And that well, should we stop? Yeah, I appreciate you being with us today. It's a pleasure it to fun. see I would you. love to do it again. Yeah, it was always fun. You always have such a ton of wisdom to share, man. Well, I'm, I mean, gonna ask, I'm gonna ask the, the listeners to do one thing for me. Go on Facebook or Internet's message board, please, and just say that you took, took my webinar and that you found some, some value in it. <laughs> And uh, hopefully um, next time I do one, I could help more people for longer and more people attend. Um, I'm not here to uh, pitch a particular philosophy. Um, I'm not here uh, to sell you anything. Just offered help today and I would love to help more people. Beautiful, beautiful Thank statement. You, Paul. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. Thanks to everybody for attending our webinar. And as Nick said, go on and give him a good report on, on, on the Facebook pages and uh, you guys take care. Good seeing y'all. Till next time.